Welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. That's this podcast that you happen to be tuned into. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to the show, you can do so by going to comingupnext.com.au. That way, it's just going to make sure that the show downloads into your pocket each and every week. Uh, and thank you in advance for doing that. And thank you if you are already subscribed, if you're downloading the show, if you're streaming the show, however you're consuming the show, thank you for consuming the show and while we're saying thank you thank you a big thank you to my guests from last week to lee matthews and neil triffett uh for coming on and chatting about their feature film emo the musical which has uh, been doing pretty incredible things in the australian film well actually on a global scale as well uh emo the musical.com if you want to find out how to watch that genevieve brock is my guest this week for episode 139 of Coming Up Next. Genevieve uh, is an actor, producer, writer. Uh, She and I connected a little while ago. She was uh, listening to this podcast and she reached out just to say g'day. And um, after looking into what she herself was doing, it became quite apparent that she was certainly someone who was living the coming up next ethos, a creative life that she was designing for herself. Uh, I discovered that she was creating a show called Bernie Brown, uh, along with a couple of other amazing creative people, well, with a lot of other amazing creative people, but um, they were creating this show that they were self-funding and uh, they were just going out there and making it over a 10-month period um, to get six episodes in the can and I wanted to get her on the show to speak about that, to speak about the process, to speak about the commitment, to speak about the philosophy uh, and to speak about whether or not there was uh, satisfaction from the way that they were doing it, you know, little by little, weekend by weekend, you know, devoting their whole lives to creating this show for a year, well, more than that. But uh, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into it all, and we're going to get into it right now. Coming up next, 139, with Genevieve Brock. So how far into the post-production process for Bernie Brown are you? Um, we did a rough cut for our rap party. So that's about as far as we've done. Everything's got to be like all the audio has to be synced. It's like all the basic stuff. So Mm. yeah. So it's it's pretty fresh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot to do. I think it's like next year's, next year's problem. Right. 2018's. Yeah. Dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to be balancing that from your lovely cottage in Vancouver. I won't be doing it. So, no. yes, no, um, Cassie, Cassie and Paul will do that. Right. Have we started? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I'm so nervous. <laughs> Why are you nervous? <laughs> because I'm one of those people that 
I need to be prepared. Yeah. So an ideal an ideal interview scenario for me is through email. So right. I can um, I can prepare my answers. Mm. But yeah, I'm one of those people like I have to be prepared. And I love improv. So I was one of those people in improv class where they're like, don't plan anything. We're just going to give you the scenario. Don't plan it in your head. Don't plan it before you get up and do it. And the whole time I'd be planning. I'm like, I've got to plan it. I've got to plan it. I've got to plan it. So I'm like, I've got no idea what you're going to throw at me. Yeah. How is that kind of uh, attitude? Um, how has that sort of treated you or how, how have you managed to, uh, I guess deal with that in working in an industry where you basically can't plan more than about three weeks ahead. Yeah, that's, I guess I'm one of those people that I probably go against the grain in that respect. I'm, and it might be from my dad's in the army. So I think growing up as an army brat, he was always like, you're always planning for the worst case scenario. You're always planning ahead. He would always be like, what's your plan? What's your backup plan? So it's been drummed into me from a young age that you've always got to have a plan. So even when I'm trying to be spontaneous, it's all planned. Right. So yeah, I guess that's probably where not like, I don't have anxiety or anything, but I guess um, I often feel like there's such a lack of control because I'm trying to plan as much as I can, you know, for the future you know, for my career, but you're absolutely right. There's, there's such an element of, of lack of control. Mm. But yeah. at the same time, you can't do something like what you've just done with Bernie Brown. Mm. You know, it was what, like a nine month, 10 months, 10 month production yeah. process every weekend. Yeah. So that essentially means that you give up your entire life for 10 months because you're working yeah. your day job during the week. Yeah. And then on the weekend you're shooting to inspire and encourage people and to actually follow through with that Mm. would require a tremendous amount of planning. Yes, absolutely. The preparation for the show, and it's, it's a great thing that both Cassie and myself are so, we're such planners, we're so prepared. We, I mean, this has been in the works for five years we had we did a year's worth of pre-production then we kicked off actual production in January of this year and we had aimed to stay sort of two to three weeks ahead of what was coming there were 20 locations in the show so you know after a while it just we took that just went out the window like instead of trying to be two three four weeks ahead we were planning things the day before like you you do it does just you have the best intentions but when you're actually in it and things are going wrong and you've got we had a cast of like a hundred people by the end with all our you know bit players and guesties and as well as the main cast so when you're juggling that many people's availability plus 20 locations you just you you're, you're literally just going week to week yeah I mean you hear these kind of legendary stories you know like Peter Jackson shot his first feature film on weekends in his spare time Mm. you know you hear of these kind of stories of people who are just like I'm fucking doing it yeah I'm doing it yeah Uh, you know I don't care how long it takes me I don't care what I have to do (laughs) yeah I'm like the opposite of that I'm like 
I need it to be done right now, like six weeks every day. Like I'm like, I can't kind of, I mean, maybe now that I've been working on a documentary for like seven years, maybe I could, <laughs> I can say that I have that level of patience, but certainly for a long time, I, you know, the idea of doing that and being that sort of, I guess, uh, being that sort of patient and diligent with a project um, was something that, you know, I found a lot of difficulty wrapping my mm. head around. How, when you guys started it, did you imagine that it was going to be this three-year process? I mean, you said it's already five years, so I'm already shortchanging you. But mm. from, you know, the start of pre-production to the mm. end of post-production, that period's like looking like it'll be about three years. Mm. What was the, did you kind of map that out? Um, no, I guess, so we shot the pilot for it back in 2013, the very start of 2013. And that probably, we, I think we managed to get that up by May, um, of that year. So May of 2013. And then from then on, it was like, let's let's write the rest of the show, let's do it. And, but then from that point, that's when it took ages. We had planned to, I mean, we wrote, like Cassie wrote all the scripts. We had planned to pitch it to the ABC and we were trying to get grants and funding for it. And then that in itself just took a year. And then we decided we're going to put it on hold. We'll shelve it. And then that's when Cassie and Paul wanted to open their own production studio. So they opened DCF Studios. Then that, again, that took another year. And that was solely the focus. And there was for a long, for a very long time, I thought this is never going to happen. Like year after year goes by and I went, no, it's not going to happen, not going to happen. And so... I really started to get on their case and I was like, you know, when are we making the show? And I do my friendly email every couple of weeks and just had so much pushback until, yeah, I thought it was probably, when was it? The end of maybe 20, 2015 that I was like, I'll, I'll try one more time and just see, and then I'm probably gonna have to give up on it. And I emailed and just said, you know, when are we going to do this? And Cassie ended up writing back and I was just like, oh, she's going to push back again. And she was just like, yep, we're doing it. I'm going to work out a plan over Christmas. Um, We'll all sit down in the new year and we'll go for it. And then literally 2016, it was on. Mm. We, um, yeah, we started pre-production. That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess concurrently to this, while you're trying to get, Bernie Brown up and running mm. with, with uh, Cassie and Paul. What were you doing to, I guess, satiate your creative outlets? Um, I did a lot of short films and I guess I've had an agent, you know, the whole time. So um, <laughs> just sitting around waiting for the phone to ring. Um, but you don't really sit around waiting. For no, the phone, you don't, because do um, the phone never rang. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I did a heap of short films, and I was writing stuff, and I did some ske- some of my own sketches. I started creating my own, my own characters, and you do. There does come a point where you realize that you have to just start making your own content. You can't wait. You just can't because. I don't know, unless you really have maybe built a profile and people aren't sort of knocking down your door. For someone like me, 
who I've been at it for 10 years, if not more. And, you know, you, I guess you feel like you've still got such a long way to go. So yeah, no, I did a a whole heap of shorts. Mm. Yeah. Have your parents been encouraging of your pursuits? Yeah, they are now. I think growing up, I always wanted to be an actor and my mum was always super supportive, but my dad, the army man, <laughs> um, he was just like, Did you oh, want to play theatre sports with you? <laughs> Some kind of sports, <laughs> um, target practice. Um, no, he was always like, give it a good crack. And then if, if it doesn't work out, what's your plan? What's your backup plan? And, but then you know, I think I've never kind of given up on it and he's probably seen me slog my guts out and I think he really respects it. I mean, it took him, he's been in the army since he was 16, but he always wanted to do medicine and it took him so long. I reckon it took him 10 years to get into medicine. He was a mature age student and he never gave up and I guess he probably saw the same maybe work ethic or the same qualities in me and chip off the old block. (laughs) Um, and then just became like my biggest fan, my biggest supporter. So were you creating stuff as a kid? Do you, mm, yeah. Or was it, do you remember the first time? Um, I think the first, there's actually a classic family photo, which I'll have to show you. It's my sister and I, this is, I would have been maybe three, I reckon three or four. It's my sister and I and our older cousin and we put on the nativity scene for our families and yeah I wanted to play baby Jesus so my sister played Mary my cousin played Joseph and I really wanted to be baby Jesus and my sister was like no you can be the donkey (laughs) that Mary rides into Bethlehem on so there's yeah a classic photo of me just like forlorn sitting there we're all sitting there posing and Mm, um yeah making an ass of yourself yeah. (laughs) yeah zing and then I think like in grade one, we did the Wizard of Oz and I was like a munchkin. Still am. Yeah, I think, yeah, from a very, very young age, I always knew I wanted to perform. So we were always reenacting movies that we watched and putting on stuff for our parents. So, yeah. Yeah. What did you think that your career was going to look like when you were in your <laughs> teens and going through high school? Oh my gosh, this is classic. So all through high school, I did drama. I loved it. And, you know, I guess I was probably the funny one in high school. I was one of the school captains and I used to write all the speeches and I just used to get such a kick out of making people laugh. I would do anything for a laugh. It didn't matter what it was. That was all I cared about. Mm. And in high school, Everyone just fed my ego. All the girls I went to school with are like, oh my God, you're going to make it. And I'm like, I know. And I thought by the time I was in my early 20s, I'm like, yeah, I'll finish high school. I'm going to go straight to Hollywood and just do it. And then I left school and went, oh my God, like you come into the real world. I think school, you're in such a bubble. It's, it is so different to the real world. And I had a severe reality check and I almost lost all my confidence actually when once I left school and I wasn't surrounded by people just pumping up the ego, 
um, yeah, I was like, uh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I probably pursued it half-heartedly because I was so afraid. I started doing auditions and it was the scariest, most awful experience because all of a sudden it's not your peers pumping you up. It's people being like, you can't act for shit. So it, yeah, I honestly thought by the time I was in my early twenties, I'd be in Hollywood, just famous. (laughs) And the misguided idea of what it means to make it. Yes, absolutely. And, but you know, we all have that. Oh, totally. Growing up. Absolutely. So yeah, the uh, the goalposts have shifted somewhat to mm. accommodate for the reality. <laughs> was comedy something that was quite um, uh, quite prevalent in your family and your upbringing? My my mum and dad have a very good sense of humour, especially my dad. And my mum's someone who really doesn't take herself very seriously at all. So I think yeah, I, growing up, I had a really healthy sort of sense of humour and self esteem. Super sarcastic, like. Um, and that's kind of mellowed out over the years when, yeah, people don't often, uh, take to that humor. <laughs> so what, when the goalposts shifted then when you came out of school, mm. what sort of things would you do in school to get a laugh? I used to like, if I had to do a sp- as one of the school captains, if I used to have to do a speech, I'd reenact, you know, other actors or politicians or that kind of thing and just that sort of cheeky humor I was so theatrical um or I'd dress up and it was always uh, did you ever watch the footy show mm-hmm. this is um, this is back with like Fatty Vorton and no st- oh I'm talking like the NRL footy oh, show no, no I never watched the NRL footy show um what was his name Matthew Johns right. he was a New South Wales footy player I think he used to play for Newcastle Knights and he had this character that he used to play it was called Reg Reagan so almost something you'd see out of fast forward so I'd like reenact things like that I'd be these stupid characters and I thought I was hilarious so yeah I reckon people just thought I was special but right. yeah I thought I was funny <laughs> yeah um when did you start writing your own sketches or material? Um, it sounds like you were doing it in high school. Even yeah, it's, it it's funny. Or... Yeah, I can't. I loved. If I didn't pursue acting, I definitely would have gone down the writing route. I reckon, um, even possibly journalism. But yeah, I've always, I've always loved writing. I used to write poems when I was little and stories. I used to write novels. When I was, I reckon like 11 or 12, I used to write novels thinking that they were just going to get published like Mm. that. And so I've always had the passion for it. Um, But I think actually having the confidence to write my own material and then performing it was only probably in the last couple of years that, um, and that was sheerly out of thinking things aren't happening fast enough. You've just got to stop. I'm such a perfectionist. You've just got to stop. Things aren't going according to plan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just have to. You just have to do it. You yeah. can't. I guess I've been so worried about what people think of me, and everything has to be perfect before it, you know, can get in front of someone. And now I'm just like, I'm early 30s, and I'm like, mm. <laughs> time's running out. When did you kind of shift the goalposts, and what made you shift the goalposts? I mean, I'm someone that. 
I'm really interested in sort of personal development and always bettering myself and how can I be a better sister, friend, daughter, girlfriend, whatever. And I read a shitload of, you know, self-development books and I had, there was definitely a moment where I think it was maybe 2011 and up until that point, my attitude was quite negative. It was always like, why isn't this happening to me? Why not me? When is it my turn? And I don't know. I think with all these books that I was reading, I realized that the problem was me. You know, I sort of, not that I never took responsibility for anything, but I I wasn't aware that my attitude had such, was probably like had so much to do with my goalpost shifting. So I think once I took stock and went, oh my God, it's my attitude that's holding me back. And there's almost sometimes this sense of entitlement. It's like, I deserve this though. Like this is my dream. When is my dream going to come true? And, but what was I really doing to make it come true? I wasn't really doing anything. I was waiting. I was just waiting for it to fall in my lap. So I definitely took stock, changed my attitude and went, yeah, the problem is me and did a lot of work on myself and still, you know, still to this day, still constantly working on myself. It's kind of easy to fall back into patterns where you go, oh, like I'm doing everything I can. Why isn't, why is nothing working? But you just, you just got to slap it out of yourself and, and just keep going. But yeah, I think I definitely started shifting the goalpost. I reckon in the last couple of years. So what are the goalposts that you're referring to as in the goalposts of what it means to make it or what it means to. Yeah. Um, or I guess instead of now being like, this is exactly what success is and I'll know it. I'll know it's success when I get there because I know what it looks like now you can't, I'm kind of making it up as I go along or almost just being grateful for the journey. Now it's, I'm trying not to make it about the destination anymore. I am just trying to enjoy the journey and seeing the privilege in living in a country and living in a world where you you really can make your dream come true. You have to work hard, but it is a privilege to be able to do what I can do and not see it as if I do this, this and this, then it's going to happen. It's more like I'm grateful that I get to do this. And I just want people to see my work and enjoy it. That's all I want now. It's, it's not the whole like, I mean, Hollywood would be amazing, but it's not the end game anymore like it once was. It's now just, yeah, I guess enjoying the journey. At what point did you kind of really commit to this shift and then actually start to produce your own work? Mm. I reckon 2015 is when I really committed to, I guess, this new attitude that I had. And I did some mentoring with, do you know the casting director, Greg Apps? Yeah. Did some mentoring with him and that changed my life, you know, in, a, in an acting sort of career sense. I guess I developed this newfound confidence in myself and that I actually really started believing that I could do it. I think up until, up until that point, there was a huge part of me that was, I had so much self-doubt. 
it was like I had this dream and I knew that I could do it. But at the same time, I either didn't think I deserved it or just didn't think I was good enough. And it wasn't until I did some coaching with Greg that he made me see that your own content is king. And that's when it sort of started. That's when I stopped being afraid and just started doing it, putting it out there and getting a good response. So, but I think by that stage, I had started to stop caring about what people thought and just did things that I enjoyed. So just wanted to produce characters and write characters and skits and be in things that I was enjoying rather than trying to be the actor that's like, I'll do anything, I can do anything. I've let that go mm. because I can't. Like that's the truth. I, I think I know now where my niche is and I think with that comes confidence. I think when you're younger, you compare yourself to the, the Hollywood greats. Like you look at where they are, you look at, you want that to be your life, you want that to be your career, but then you look at your skill level and go, I, <laughs> I can't, I can't do this. I can't be like that. I'm, I'm not them. But I think once I realized that I'm good at a really specific thing, I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ride that all the way and, and leave out all the rest. Mm. Was there a particular incident or moment that really kind of pushed you to question yourself? Yeah. Um, I had a, I was in a really bad car accident. So sometimes I feel like and this is me getting a bit woo-woo, but um, I, I had a really bad car accident in 2011. I was riding, I used to ride my push bike to and from work and I was riding along um, Nepean Highway. It was at night, it was raining, had lights and everything. And I wasn't a confident rider anyway. I hated riding the bike and I was just such a cheapskate. I wouldn't take the tram and... <laughs> I'd racked up so many tram fines and I was just like, I can't have another tram fine. And so instead of just paying for tickets, I just, I was like, nah, I'll get a bike. I used to make life very hard for myself. <laughs> and yeah, I'm riding along and this car was sort of merging onto the highway. So he wasn't going particularly fast, but literally just didn't see me and just plowed through me, knocked me off my bike. I went flying onto the highway my bike kind of landed on top of me and all I remember seeing is just these car headlights just coming towards me. And in that moment, I was like, I'm dead. That's it. Like I kind of had that life flash before your eyes. I was like, oh, this is the end. And I think I had that moment where I was like, oh no, like I'm too young to die. And then they thankfully stopped. Yeah. Um, and I did, I shattered my coccyx bone and um, it was such a, yeah, such a bizarre sort of incident. And I remember thinking, because this at the time I was heavily involved in boxing, and I remember thinking, as I'm dragging myself off the road, I remember thinking, oh, I've got to tell my trainer I'm not going to come to boxing tomorrow. Like <laughs> people are trying to call an ambulance, and I'm like, no, no ambulances, because I didn't know if I was covered. And I'm yeah, like, ambulance, fine. I can't afford it. <laughs> so, um, and and so after that, I'm, I'll just I'll. I'll fast forward. So during my recovery, I did. I remember whenever I told people what was wrong with me, it was so negative. Like, oh, I can't believe this has happened to me. Why me? I can't train now. I can't do this. I can't do that. It was all, all always negative. And I remember someone pulling me aside saying, you're lucky to be alive. 
And they were like, you could have broken your back. You could be in a wheelchair. They were like, you should be grateful that you're alive. And I went, oh my God, like, you're right. And I think from there, I, that was when I started to realize I'm the one with the problem. It's my attitude. I'm making life really hard for myself. And that was kind of the definitive moment where I went, I don't know if I necessarily like who I am anymore. And the way that I'm living isn't serving me and I, I want to change. So I did. Mm. You're also a, you're also like a, a fitness model as well as an actor and you were a personal trainer at that point in time as well. Yeah. Yeah. So being on the sidelines like that, I guess would mean that you couldn't train, yep. couldn't work, yep. couldn't act. Mm. Yeah. So it's like this big kind yeah. of chasm so, for you to really sure. reflect on. Mm what what you want to do or what you want to be or I guess if you're if you're willing you can kind of examine how you think about things Mm. yeah I definitely had the time at that point to yeah really take stock and you're right like and this is kind of going back to the Genevieve of old who was I had to I don't know I guess I'm pretty competitive and like I said such a perfectionist so I kind of, I was one of those people that had to be the best at everything. So if I was going to do things, I had to be the best. And that's why I could never do things for fun. I could never have hobbies because I'd try and take them as far as I could go. But if I wasn't like at an elite level or an Olympic level or whatever, I'd just just toss it, get rid of it because, yeah, it's such an ego, like there's such ego involved in it. Um, But... Yeah, I think I did have time to kind of go, what do you want? Like, why are you trying to be everything? You're you're almost like a jack of all trades, master of none. Like when you're trying to be good at everything, trying to be the best at everything, you end up not being good at anything. And you end up being really down on yourself for not being good at anything, for not achieving. So um, yeah, it was all of that sort of stuff started coming up. And I realized, yeah, I started to get a better idea of what I wanted to do. So I guess it was not long after that that you started writing the pilot version of Bernie Brown. Yes. Yep. I'd worked with Cassie and Paul a little bit before the pilot. And what did you work with them on? Well, I did a I did a short with them about um, the Black Saturday bushfires. A good friend of theirs actually lost their home and right. um, yeah, all this sort of awful stuff and and that person wanted to make a film. So that was when I very first met them on that short. And then we made like an action short film together, like a post-apocalyptic. <laughs> it was like a six-minute film yeah. that we, yeah, we kind of came up with a concept together. We wrote it, shot it, and it got into a film festival in New York. Cool. So in 2012, we went over to New York together just to, yeah, like promote the film. And we all stayed in the same hotel room. We, yeah, basically gallivanted around New York together. And it was, it was probably the best time of my life because that's when everything changed. And there was one night when we were sitting around our hotel room, just giddy with being in the Big Apple. And I said, I've got an idea for a short film. And I was like, we're going to make it when we get back to Melbourne. And I told them. And we were basically just killing ourselves laughing on the floor. How did um, you pitch it to them? Well, it, at that stage, it wasn't Bernie Brown. Okay. So at that stage, um, so it 
this is a bit of a long-winded story, but Cassie, the first night we arrived in New York, um, blocked the toilet. So she got a little bit confused with how the flushes work. So she went to the toilet, number twos, blocked the toilet and literally <laughs> like the bathroom just started filling up with literal shit. Yeah. Um, and this poor little Italian like bellhop had to come up and clean up the toilet. We just hear this scream from the bathroom being like, oh no, like something's happened. And there's just shit seeping out under the bathroom door. So welcome to New York. Like, yeah. <laughs> like fucking Aussies. Um, anyway, so from then, I think with all this literal poo, my idea for a, for a film was to, it was going to be about a girl that goes on a date and it's like one of those dating horror stories. She goes out with this guy. She goes, she goes back to his place. They sleep together, have a great night. He leaves for work. And then the next day she gets up, goes to the toilet, does a number two, Flush doesn't work, can't get rid of it. So she's like, no problem. I'll just get to put it in a plastic bag and take it with me on the way out. <laughs> and so she accidentally, and so she's, she writes a note on the bench to leave and just be like, I had the night of my life, you know, whatever. And then leaves the note there, takes her bag and leaves, but leaves the bag of shit next to the note. Uh. So that was my idea for a film. And I told them and they were like, oh my God. And they were like, it can be a talking poo and just all this craziness. And then when I came back to Melbourne, I told someone my idea and they went, that's been done. I went, what? And they were like, that, that's been done before. Like, that's an urban dating myth. And I'm like, no, like... No, it's not. I'm like, I've come up with that. And they were like, no, no. And I looked it up and sure enough, it was an urban dating myth. Yeah, right. There were already like three other short films of the exact same concept. And I was like, God, what are the chances? So then Cassie was, I was devastated because I think I had my heart set on this, you know, story about poo and I told them and she was like, don't worry, I'll, I'll sort it out. I'll rewrite something. And she wrote the pilot for Bernie Brown. So literally the only thing of poo that stayed was Brown, the surname. (laughs) And so it had gone from like this dating horror story to this, um, this kind of crazy, lovable sort of loser character who works in a magazine house, has a crush on the marketing guy and basically is just chasing him down. And that was, that's how Bernie Brown was born. Mm. So, so different from... Born out of shit. <laughs> literally, literally. Yeah. I mean, people might still think it's shit, but that's <laughs> can't please everyone. <laughs> yeah. So, what was it like when you actually made that pilot? What was the, was the process like of pulling that together? God, it, I had the time of my life. It was so fun. It was so much work. And we, so in 2013, it was just, it was literally just after Christmas. We shot it in seven days. We'd raised like seven grand, I think on possible, like we did a possible campaign, which is a full top full-time job in itself, as you well know, I'm sure. Mm. Um, and yeah, we just got a lot of support from people and, you know, essentially everyone did it for nothing. It was just a labor of love, but God, we had such a good time. 
um, and got really lucky with locations, people just donating locations to us. We shot it all around Melbourne, mostly around Thornbury and Northcote. Um, so yeah, shot it in seven days and then a couple of months in post and then it screened at the Palace Cinemas in Northcote, Westgarth, Westgarth Cinema. Cool. Yeah. And then the rest is kind of history, mm. I guess. Two years of kind of radio silence and then yeah. getting into pre yep. 2016 yeah. for the whole show. So when you started pre for the series, did mm. you have... It's six episodes, isn't it? Yeah. Did you have the six episodes written? So they were written after we had the screening. So the screening of... um, So the pilot of Bernie Brown was called What a Gun. That was the name of it. And it was essentially the pilot, but a standalone sort of short film. So at that stage, there was kind of no series in mind. But then we got such a good response and people loved the characters that we sort of went, I think... There's more here. I think there's so much more we can do with this world. So Cassie went, let's make this a series. And it was very soon after the screening of What a Gun that she wrote the six episodes. So the six episodes have been written nearly five years before we shot it. Yeah, wow. So it's sort of mean it's all been sitting here ready to go. It's just the timing. Mm. It takes forever to get things up. Yeah, timing is very important as well. Mm. Um, and I guess it's so much of it is about being ready for when the time is right. So you've got to kind of keep that flicker or that flame kind of Mm. flickering for, well, in your case, five years so far. Yeah. But I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have pushed it if I didn't believe in it. And that's the thing. I had so much belief in this show and I am like my own worst critic. I'm pretty harsh, like with especially judging my own work and the writing is so good. Like, honestly, I really, I would never pursue or back anything that I didn't believe in. And I just knew I was like, I can't, this, this needs to be on a screen somewhere. It can't be on a shelf, you know, just six scripts gathering dust. And that is a testament to Cassie. So Cassie, the director is my co-producer and she wrote it. Like she is incredible and yeah, it truly is a testament to her writing because yeah, I had so much faith that it belonged on a screen somewhere. So that's why I just kept pushing it. And Mm. I think that's what made me hold out. That was the flame that was flickering was that I knew that the writing was so good that it was kind of only a matter of time. And I think, like I said before, we had waited, we'd wanted to get funding because to make a show like this, you have to make it properly. You can't make it on a shoestring budget. It's well, so... Pro- relatively speaking. True. <laughs> but it's so prop heavy and there's so many locations and there's so many gags and visual effects that we, we couldn't do like a $7,000 possible campaign again. You just couldn't do it. It wouldn't do it justice. So we were waiting for funding and that was just a waste of time. So in the end, we literally, the three of us, Cassie, Paul and I just went fuck it, life savings, bang, we're going to do it out of our own pocket. And we did. Mm. Mm. I think that's one of the most impressive parts of the story for me anyway, is that, you know, you did just put your money where your mouth is quite literally. And not only that, but you made sure that, you know, you didn't cut corners uh, 
where you where you shouldn't in the sense yeah. that you know people got paid you know you, you made sure that everyone felt valued for being a part of the project um, and it wasn't just a hey you want something for your showreel kind of deal no and we were blessed in the sense that all the main cast bar two from the pilot all wanted to come back and that makes me feel really good that they had such a good time and that they also believed in the project that they wanted to come back and get on board. But we, yeah, we made sure that we paid everyone. So all the main cast and crew were paid any, like, I guess with extras or people that just did like a little bit part, we couldn't, it was very much, um, doing it for the love, but yeah, cause I guess we, we had to pay for locations and, um, and gear and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, we, as much as we could, we tried to pay everyone. Mm. Um, and yeah, like you said, made sure everyone felt valued, but we just wanted everyone to have a good time. Like it, yeah, it really was probably one of the most fun sets I've ever been on. Mm. And I was really conscious of, I guess, trying to set the example in that regard. Yeah. And it may seem, uh, I guess, rudimental to some people listening that everyone would get paid, but particularly when people are putting their own money into things, I think they'll often try and get things done as cheaply as possible when we're, when you're working on an independent kind of scale. Mm. So yeah, I, I, um, well, I mean, don't get me wrong. We did beg, borrow and steal. Oh, absolutely. You got to hustle. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I guess anyone that we ever came in contact with, whether if, whether it was a location or, you know, another actor, um, people just really believed in it and loved it and just wanted to be a part of it. That was the thing. It's We seem to foster this, I don't know, this community sort of energy where people were like, I don't care that you're not paying me. Let's Let's do it. I want you to succeed. I want you to make this. I want this on the screen. So... Yeah, as much as we did try to pay everyone um, and we spent the budget, believe you me. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess it it came from a good place, I suppose. Yeah, and I think the sad reality is that often in the arts and in creative mm. pursuits, um, a lot of the times the artists are not necessarily remunerated for their hard work. Yeah. Um, so what was it like? What was the first day of shooting like? Oh, it was awesome. It was summer. It was literally January of this year. And there was this buzz because I guess, like I said, it's been five years in the making that we actually couldn't quite believe it was happening. So there was just, yeah, this absolute buzz. And it's so fun. Like one of the first scenes that we shot is Australia Day in the show. So there's an Australian Day sort of barbecue and I guess doing that in summer with this, you know, our ridiculous outfits and, you know, the ridiculous writing. Um, It was great. Yeah, it was awesome. But I could literally say that about every single day. (laughs) And look, it was – there were days – we'd be doing, I reckon, 12 to 14-hour days every weekend – and Cassie and I would be up the night before cooking the catering for everybody because we, we couldn't afford catering. So we'd be cooking for everyone. And 
there was not a lot of sleep to be had over the 10 months. But when you're there, you just, I mean, you fall in a heap afterwards. But when you're there on set acting out these just ridiculous, fun, crazy characters, you, I, you just, you come to life. Everyone just comes to life. It's, yeah, I had a blast. I, honestly, I had the time of my life. Mm. I always kind of thought my dream role would be on a Hollywood, you know, studio somewhere, you know, doing some kick butt action scene or doing some sort of comedy, like the comedy stuff I grew up on. But it dawned on me closer to us rapping that I went, this is the dream. When am I ever going to be producing my own show where I'm the lead character, the lead actress and get to do all the stuff that every actress wants to do on, on camera. Like I ticked so many things off in one production and I went, I'll probably never have this opportunity again and work with, with these kinds of people ever again. It was, it was a family. Absolutely. What were some of the challenges on a week to week basis? Everything, every, like everything is a challenge. You're constantly troubleshooting. You're constantly problem solving. That is filmmaking you know, locations falling through the day before, um, actors maybe taking another gig um, when they're scheduled to film and people falling ill or just that kind of thing. Like it was such, we had, we were very ambitious. We had planned to shoot it in six months. I wanted it done in six months because of me moving away And it just kept getting pushed out, pushed out, pushed out. And I was like, I'm leaving in December. We've got to finish this show by October. So we were literally four months. It went over four months longer than we wanted it to. But yeah, I think the other big challenge is that we were all working full time outside of shooting. So everyone's working 40, 50 hour weeks and giving up their entire weekend, their social life you know, time with family, with friends, with partners, with their children to go on this crazy adventure with us. And, you know, that's sort of, that does sort of present problems. People run out of steam. It's, yeah, but mm. again, very blessed. Had your, uh, how did your partner deal with it? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was very supportive, but, I mean, it's that's rough. That's rough to you know, be like ships in the night, so to speak. He's working full-time, I'm working full-time, I'm away every week. And that's the thing, it's for me, I have so much responsibility. It's It wasn't just 10 months of filming, it was like the year prior to that, I'm working on it every spare minute I had. And he probably doesn't know me not to be on a laptop or not to be on set. So it was it was tricky and I guess for someone with a non-acting background like he's a tradesman so with a non-acting background it is unless you're in it it is really hard to understand it and yeah it was it was tough I think as proud as he is I'm sure he was happy to see me (laughs) yeah finish up (laughs) yeah so as you're going through uh through the production what's the kind of collective sense about the project or did you feel like there was a a real kind of um, energy about what was what you guys were creating together? We really felt like we were making something special. There was just, yeah, I can't really explain it, but 
there was definitely I don't know I've I've done that many short films some have been really high-end productions others have been student productions which can be high-end productions and some you hope never see the light of day (laughs) and I guess when you're making other people's work sometimes you kind of go oh yeah like this is probably going to end up you know fabulously on screen others you're like yeah I god I I wish I never signed on to this but you kind of have you sort of have a sense of what it's going to be like and I think with this when it's your own work I thought I would be the kind of person that was like it's not good enough my performance was terrible and I did I put a lot of pressure on myself I felt carrying a show I was pretty nervous. There was, I think in pre-production, I had multiple freakouts, being like, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I'm, I'm good enough to do this. I'm not cut out for it. But once we started, I, all of that disappeared. I just, I had such a good time. I had so much fun. And we really did feel like we were making something magical. <laughs> Sounds so wanky. <laughs> like we created magic, but it did have that feel to it. I not at, at, at one point I never thought to myself, nah, this isn't good enough. I always felt like this was going to go somewhere. I'll laugh if this doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess our intentions were for it to always end up on the screen. It's not just going to get made and then spend years in post-production. We're going to try and gun it and get it out there and, and push it as far as it can go. And I think the belief in other people and also attracting certain people onto the project, like we had Peter Hitchner come on board our project and we had Gabrielle Gatte, the, <laughs> um, the chef, the French chef. Like we had certain people just come on board because they were so excited by it. And I think that fuels your confidence. You, people who have been in the industry for so long that are like, this is fabulous. Like I want it. I want in. You're like, Oh, okay. Like maybe it is, maybe it is good enough. And I think a lot of that comes down to your kind of sheer will and determination to get stuff done as well as what you're putting together. I think that that kind of energy is infectious. When you set out to make this, did you have a plan of where you thought it would live? Because obviously over a three or five year period, particularly the last five years, the way that people consume TV and films has changed quite a lot. Yeah, initially when we did the pilot, we, it was like it was TV or it was nothing. We wanted it, we thought SBS or ABC, ABC2. Um, and we pitched it. We pitched it to ABC and SBS and at the time, Cassie was still a producer for Channel 9. So we were going to pitch it to Channel 9 as well. And then I think that was sort of on the cusp of when, not TV was sort of dying, but it was when sort of free-to-air platforms um, and digital media and all that sort of stuff were on the rise. And web series all of a sudden exploded and then like Netflix and Stan just come along. And so as time has gone on, we've rewritten a couple of times, I'm sorry, a few times. Um, Cassie's definitely done some rewrites to, I guess, support the changing landscape of not only the way that, you know, 
the media and digital world is, but also to kind of keep up with the times. Like if I read the scripts five years ago, I don't know, like there were gags and stuff that just aren't even relevant anymore. So that's how fast things change. So I guess we always thought it would be television, but now I guess worst case scenario would be just YouTube. Like that's, you know, we'll, we'll make it a web series if we can't get it onto another platform, but like Netflix is the dream (laughs) or Stan. Um, But, you know, even now with ABC, they've got like a comedy channel. So there's just, I, you know, as much as I wanted back, you know, five years ago for it to have happened then, I feel like now, now is the time. Mm. It's sort of of probably happened organically and, and at the right time. I think we're pitching it at a really good time where, you know, content is being screamed for. Mm. That's one of the resounding things I hear from a lot of producers is that there are so many opportunities to be creating content, pitching, like getting your content bought and whatnot. Absolutely. And, but things do change so quickly. There was a couple of years ago, I think back in pre-production, I had my eye on, did you ever hear of CISO? It was a US comedy content channel. Oh, actually, yeah, I did. Just comedy. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the Aussie sketch groups like um, Skitbox and Auntie Donna, I think a lot of their stuff, I think, had gotten onto CISO. And I had my eye on them for Bernie Brown. And then, but they've, they've kaput Mm. already. I'm like, oh, so things do change so rapidly. So I guess even by the time it comes for us to once everything's edited which i reckon it'd be 12 months time there's probably going to be 10 other channels or mm. platforms so yeah and yeah. if there's no more net neutrality we'll be paying a lot of money for all of them yeah <laughs> um, would you do anything differently if you could go back and or if you were starting the same sort of process again no no regrets i think um, and that's kind of i guess my new motto for life, but is, yeah, I probably wouldn't change anything because I guess that discounts the journey that we had. Mm. I'd, I, I almost, I'd take it warts and all because I think sometimes it's sweet. It tastes sweeter when you've worked your butt off for it. I mean, it'd be nice if we just got handed half a mil to make a show when, but I think, there is definitely something to be said for overcoming every single challenge, every single obstacle, running out of money when we had four months to go and just having to do it. Everyone just, we were such a, such a good team. So no, I wouldn't change anything because I can literally walk away from it and go, if it doesn't go anywhere, I'm still so proud of myself. And I never say that. But I'm, yeah, I'm so proud with what we achieved. Well, now you've got it on record. You can <laughs> yes. Go back and listen to it over and over again. <laughs> over and over and over again. About how proud you are of yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's good. I think I think it's important to acknowledge the the wins. Totally. It's you. You. I think it'd be like someone running a marathon. After you cross that finish line, even if you're crawling over the finish line, you would be proud of yourself. Even if you didn't come first place, even if you didn't place at all, if you came dead last, you would still go, I bloody did that. And I guess that's the attitude that I have. I I made a thing. You made a thing. Yeah. yeah. 
we made a thing, I should say. There's, I love you, team. It's a huge team involved. <laughs> well, good luck for our post and good luck for your move to the Couve. Yes, I'll need it. Um, all my podcasts end with the same question. The question is, what makes you silly? Oh, I thought about this. The one question you could prepare for. Yes, exactly. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have like the wittiest, like funniest thing. And I'm like, oh, I've got nothing. Um, I think definitely like 80, I'm such an 80s girl. I was born in the 80s. So 80s music makes me silly. Absolutely. Um, but also my younger sister and I, when we get together. Right. We have the same sort of comedic sensibilities and we'll quote The Simpsons and um, daggy movies we grew up, like Mel Brooks movies we grew up with. And we'd, her and I just fair, have this real interesting connection where we just know what the other one's thinking. So when we get together, yeah, that makes me very silly. <laughs> <laughs> What's your 80s jam? Oh, God. I'm a Phil Collins lover. Right. Bit and Brian Adams. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But my karaoke song um, is Share Turn Back Time. Yeah. <laughs> if I could turn back time. That's all we can do legally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Jim. Thank you. Thank you.